Welcome to Veterinary Ophthalmology, a podcast hosted by Dr. DJ Hoisler, a board-certified veterinary ophthalmologist by the American College of Veterinary Ophthalmologists and his co-host, John Lobby. Dr. Hoisler owns and operates the Animal Eye Institute. Here, we talk about medical intervention, surgical correction, and current issues in veterinary ophthalmology. Our goal is to level you up in veterinary ophthalmology. We are back. How are you, DJ? Hey, great. Good to see you again and and go through some more stuff. It is so nice to see you. You know, this is a special day for us, a double podcast recording day for us here. Our first of the sort just came off a great podcast with a guest. We have something really special we want to do. We want to thank, first and foremost, all the people that have been following us on Instagram, at VetOptopod, at Animal Eye Institute, and sending us not not only following, but sending us notes. We've got a lot of great notes from people all around the globe, sending us pictures of of some of their procedures that and their clients that they've had, sharing stories with us, and also sharing questions. We we unexpectedly, DJ, we we actually got a episode request. Yeah. And one, it's appreciated because we <laughs> We sit there and think to ourselves, what are we going to do next? It's but- <laughs> very appreciate, appreciated. You know, like for someone to reach out and say, you know, to just randomly poke out on the internet and say, like, can you advise on this? I think super cool because now we can make a podcast like good on them for reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's also fun to have a, a little bit of a conversation back and forth, too, about different subjects because here, you know, we're just talking to ourselves and a guest every once in a while. But through social media, we're able to interact in a different way and and continue the conversation. So, um, yeah. So if anybody else has any requests, fire them over. And if it's something that we think would be fun to talk about, you know, we'll we'll do it. So here's our our first first request, and yeah, I, th- I think it'll be an interesting sort of episode. Yeah, and and so you can send us those direct messages at Vet Optopod on on Instagram. We'll be sure, or at Animal Eye Institute. We'll be sure to take them under consideration and put together some good content for you. So, Or if you have guests that you want to hear, you know, if there's somebody that is an ophthalmologist out there that you want us to connect with and talk to, then that would be a good suggestion also. Nice. So I don't have permission to use this person's name, so I, so I won't do that, but I will read the question that we got from someone who's doing their undergrad right now at Michigan State University. So shout out Spartans. DJ as a Buckeye alum will probably have an opinion on that. Yeah, well, the enemy <laughs> of my enemy is my friend. So, oh, like, there you go. They dislike University of that school up north scum as much as I do. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you're all friends here. Yeah. Friends so, here. so us and the Sparties are we're good friends. <laughs> we're good friends. Sparty had this to say: She's been loving the podcast and wanted to request an episode on things vet students can do to explore veterinary ophthalmology and boost their resume for a residency application. So this student also noted that she is an undergrad researcher currently, DJ, and presented at ACVO, and she thinks she's officially hooked. So I was looking forward to learning more before she starts vet school. She also, for for the record, said a hot dog is 100% not a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's clearly listening. Yeah, clearly listening. That's for sure. So let's start start with that topic there and look at the first question of things vet students can do to explore veterinary ophthalmology. Fire away, D. Well, I think that, you know, this isn't easy necessarily to get into. 
and a lot of it is just the the industry in veterinary ophthalmology is that you have to first start with a solid foundation of having a, a good base of general practice. And so you need to be have plenty of experience in general general practice first before being able to pursue uh, veterinary ophthalmology. And so I, I think that you have to at least least get in there first that you need to make sure that you have a good base of, of general practice work. So number one thing you can do to explore veterinary ophthalmology is don't abandon GP. Correct. All right. All right. What else? So the other thing is if you are in really good with your general practitioner and you've been there for a while, you can then express to him or her that you're interested in this and potentially they can go to bat with you or for you to your local ophthalmologist to make a phone call to your local ophthalmologist and say, hey, I have a, a vet student here. She's a good employee. He or she's a good employee. They're really interested. Is there any way that we could work something out where they could follow you around? And so therefore, you at least have a professional going to bat for you and also a, a a practitioner that may be referring you cases. So maybe as an ophthalmologist, you feel a little bit of an obligation to watch out for that that practitioner and say, sure, I'll, I'll extend a hand to somebody that you feel confidently about and therefore we'll see if we can help you out. So that that's, that's step one is try to get somebody to go to bat for you. And that's got to be a hard thing to do sometimes, you know, uh, making that ask and that question. But the thing that I've always learned in, in my field is you can't get a yes or a no if you don't ask the question. Number one reason in my field people don't make charitable contributions is because they're not asked. That's true. Right. So yeah. if you you need to make sure that as you're rotating around with professors and with uh, general practitioners in the field of veterinary medicine, you, you've got to ask there if you really feel like a specialization like ophthalmology is what you want to do, ophthalmology, dermatology, whatever it might be, you've got to ask the people that have been in that field for a while, hey, who do you know? Who do you recommend? Would you be willing to make an introduction? Yeah, and I, I think that you just can't, you can't take no for an answer. You, you can't get disappointed if someone says, like, I just don't have the capacity to have an extra person follow me around. For instance, at our practice, we have residents, we have interns, we have contracts with vet schools such as Lincoln Memorial University. And so if a person comes and says, well, I'd really like to follow you around, we may not have the capacity to just have someone come in and out and and hang out. That actually becomes somewhat disruptive to the practice. And so maybe if it doesn't work out for one ophthalmologist, it may work out for another ophthalmologist. So you just can't don't take it personally if you can't necessarily get in at the very beginning. So when students do these, ex, these, these are externships, is that right? Is yeah, that, typically that these externships. Are yeah. yeah. So is that something that they get scheduled? Is it like what's or do they kind of volunteer their time and call around and say, hey, I'm free today or I'm free tomorrow? What's the best way for them to approach that? Yeah, there there's a couple different ways. So so if you're if you're a vet student, a lot of times you get out rotations that you can utilize during your senior year. And if you want to be an ophthalmologist, you should really try hard to utilize those out rotations through an ophthalmologist if that's if that's the career path that you want to take. And if you're at least a senior in vet school, you have 
more of an ability to get into those places because you at least know the basic anatomy and terminology and, and things to hold a conversation. It's much more difficult for a person who, say, is in high school to get a spot because they don't know any of the anatomy. And so, therefore, yeah. the doctor, the specialist, and I, I'm only speaking really for myself, not for anyone else, but I, I may not necessarily want to have a discussion about what the cornea is when I'm trying to discuss a complicated corneal disease. You know, if you don't know the basics, then how do you talk about the advanced issues, you know? So another thing that, that Sparty said was that she attended and, pre- and presented, actually, which is pretty, pretty impressive at where she is, at ACVO. So talk to, talk to me about, or to the listeners, about how conferences can be beneficial for those looking to get into a specialty or, or looking to make more connections. Well, first of all, if this individual has presented at ACVO as a, as a vet student, she is, he or she is far advanced in terms of where she should be. Presenting to the ACVO can be a very intimidating scenario. I mean, we're talking about the top of the top, veterinary ophthalmologist, it's open to questions. So, you know, you could be a junior, senior in vet school and you have somebody that's been board certified for 35 years questioning you on your research and that is intimidating. I mean, I remember when I was a, I presented in San Diego my master's research at the ACVO, and I was very intimidating. I was a resident at the time. I presented this past year, and it's still intimidating. I've been board certified. I have less of a less of a aspect of not necessarily caring if somebody challenges me because I'm you know comfortable in my own skin. But I, I give a lot of kudos to someone that's a vet school a vet student that is you know, achieve that. that. That's a phenomenal achievement. But yes, I think that, you know, I remember my first ACVO that I went to, it was in 2006 in Nashville. And I didn't necessarily know what everybody was talking about. I didn't know all the science and everything, but I thought, but the pictures were amazing. The science was amazing. I was like, I got to do this. So like, I was hooked just like this individual says. I remember that year was a year that Dr. Eric Ledbetter of Cornell was presenting data on canine herpes virus and just showing some amazing photos of corneal lesions of canine herpes virus. And I was like, I don't care what it takes. I got to do this. I got to, I got to do this. So that that's, I think going to conferences at least allows you to see what the current research is, become more familiar with the language, potentially socialize with, with individuals. I mean, Many groups are going out to dinner, going out to do social activities, going out to bars afterwards. And there's a great chance that you can run into people and, and, and meet people, meet ophthalmologists and things. So it sounds like at attending a, there's attending a conference to take in the information and then there's attending a conference to make a difference for yourself professionally. Talk about the, the second part. How can veterinary students in particular... How, how do they need to act and, and present themselves outside of just sitting in a chair at a lecture to get the most out of conferences to set them up for potential residencies? <laughs> I don't know the answer to this, but, and I've given it a lot of thought. And the reason why is that there are, there are individuals such as myself that I would go to these conferences and I would sit in the lectures, take notes learn and remain very quiet. And then I would go back to my hotel room and that's it. I I didn't, I wouldn't go out. I was scared of that kind of stuff. 
And then there's other individuals that I've heard stories where they will go to these conferences and they will recognize that there's some renowned ophthalmologist in the elevator and they will literally go over and stick their hand out like, I, I'm so-and-so and I'm really interested in you know coming to uni- university. And that isn't always well-received either because when you get to the level of, of some of those guys, they're there interacting with their colleagues and having social time and they don't necessarily want to be approached you know, in, in that manner. And so I don't, I don't know what the the right answer is. I I would presume that it, that some people enjoy that attention and some people do not. So I, I, I don't know the answer to that, to that. I I think it's, it's individual specific as to how to approach that. Yeah. Well, one thing I've learned in, in the conferences that I've attended is it's work. It is work. It it is not social. It's work. you, You need to make sure that you do your homework early. Mm -hmm. Uh, You find out not just, you know, what, what an interesting topic is, but who the, who's on the dais, who's, what they're all about, the folks you want to make your introductions to and practice that introduction so that you don't come off as say a persistent person that just can't read a room, but that you're also, you make a positive impression on specialists and or physicians that you're really looking to get to learn from as you go along. Yeah, I think that's true. I definitely think you have to think about your approach. I mean, I at the recent ACVO, I had someone come up to me and I even ended up texting my sisters about this, that I was a little bit embarrassed because an individual came up to me and and told me how much she follows me on social media and our, our practice and how she appreciated how open I was to international students coming to visit and follow and and it was it was an honor to have someone speak to me like that. I didn't know that I had that impression, but on the other hand, it also made me feel a little bit awkward, I guess, just because I and I don't know, it just it just made me feel a little bit little bit weird. But I also But not in a negative way, just kind of in a like that that in the the person didn't wasn't being No, they were being incredibly nice and and, and complimentary yeah. and and flattering. And I thought, wow, this individual has to has just sought me out to talk to me about this and bet you you remember that individual. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And 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 it's I and a connection and, that has been made. Yeah, and and proud that she did that. I thought that that really went outside her own comfort zone to seek me out like that. But I I I guess, you know, I guess my best advice would be is to remain humble, read the room, don't interact with someone who may be having a a conversation with their friend you know, don't interrupt and, and make it about you. So I guess like trying to keep it as organic as possible, you know, is, is, you know, if you bump into someone at a bar at the conference and say, Oh, Hey, like, I I appreciate the research you've done or the teaching you've done or the residents that you've trained. And my name's so-and-so I'm at so-and-so and, you know, Hey, if we cross paths again in the future, I'd love a chance to talk and then just leave it at that. I think that's a a pretty respectful way to go about it. I think approaching someone in an elevator is not necessarily the best way to do it. I definitely don't think approaching someone in say like a swimming pool or a hot tub is the way to do it. Uh, definitely had that happen. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, well, that, and also remember, I think one thing you said, well, that's kind of awkward, right? Like if you're in, well, like, if you're in Hawaii yeah. and you're sitting in a hot tub, you didn't know that this person is like a, a candidate, you know, you just thought it was another guest and then they, slide over to you while you're you have no clothes on and they're like you know <laughs> can you can i do a residency with you i'm like geez i don't even have a shirt on this is weird right now you know so well it's yeah it's i think the one thing that you said that is a great takeaway is 
you know, should the opportunity for us in the future come up where we could cross paths and have a, you know, a more in-depth conversation to learn about what you presented or, or how you've been advancing your career. I'd love that opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the perfect ask because really you've just put it out there that your interest is there. You want to learn more. You're, you're committed to the field and you, furthermore, you acknowledge the, the appropriate environment to have that conversation. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's what I would consider to be a, a soft introduction. Don't come in thinking that you got to shoot your shot all at once, <laughs> right. you know, like right. You, right. you don't have to go for a kill shot in an elevator, you yeah. know, or yeah. a hot tub, you know, like yeah. just, just kind of leave it as like, I know who you are. I respect you. I'm interested. If there's any way we can continue this conversation, let me know. Yeah. And I've had people like that say that to me. And I've been like, Hey, I, I really appreciate this. Why don't we grab a Coca-Cola later, like privately, so I'm not around 20 other people that want my attention. Yeah. Let me get to know you. And I've done that to undergrads and, and vet students. And, and, and they've been very fruitful conversations. I don't want to make it seem like... You're probably learning a lot from them. As you- oh, I learned a lot from them. And, and I don't, you know, I don't want to make it in any way seem like, oh, wow, I'm Ken Griffey Jr. And you're a eighth grade baseball player. No, it's not about that. It's just knowing the right environment yeah. to approach that. Yeah. Well, the, the second thing that Sparty asked was, looks like she's getting ready to go into vet school and, and is really looking forward much farther ahead of how she can prepare herself through vet school to make her resume look great for a residency application. And I, as we're filming this, we're on the, the heels of the match for residencies across the country. And uh, you said there's how many residency spots for veterinary ophthalmology in the United States? There's roughly... Anywhere from twelve to fourteen, I believe. Um, right. So pretty competitive, spot. nonetheless. Yeah, right? and over uh, <clears throat> roughly about seventy applications. So it's pretty deep this year. Yeah. So so you've got you know you've got the opportunity to put things on paper that funnel the way of of ophthalmologists like yourself. What are some things that vet students can do to boost their resume when applying for residency? Things you particularly look at to see. You know, it's interesting. I was just asked this question three days ago as I was doing an interview. There are there are certain things on on paper. And I think that from a paper perspective, unfortunately or fortunately, however you sit, GPA is going to be looked at and class rank is going to be looked at. It's not the be all and end all of selection. So if you have a lower GPA, if you're listening, I want to tell you that don't give up. It's not the be all and end all. So so don't give up hope if you have a lower end of the GPA. I think that universities look quite a bit on if you have any sort of research experience, if you've been able to find your way into a research lab and contribute to publications or or your mentor's research. I think that carries a lot of weight. So you, let me stop you there real quick. Talk about what, what specifically, what kind of weight that adds. What is it about research that makes it something that you all look at? So it shows a commitment to forwarding scientific information. So it shows that you're willing to go outside your comfort zone to move science forward. However, it is practice dependent. So universities put a lot more weight on this than maybe private practices do. Okay. Because from a private practice standpoint, you may not necessarily be interested in research as your primary sort of drive. It's more patient success, client satisfaction, 
So from a private practice standpoint, they may not put as much weight on research as a university will. And again, this is just my my thoughts. I'm not trying to speak for anyone else. And, you know, everybody's different. I, I enjoy conversations with different academians and private practitioners as to what they look for in candidates. But that's kind of the the benefit. But it certainly, if you have it on your resume, it shows that you're more well-rounded, if anything. Okay. You know. What are some other things that you mentioned the difference between academia and private practice? So patient outcomes, client outcomes, what experiences or, or information can folks put in there on, to build up their CV and get on their resume to prepare them for a residency application? I think working with multiple ophthalmologists, whether it's private practice or academians, adds a lot to it. So if you can show that you've worked with five or six different ophthalmologists, that, that adds a lot to it. Because if you get interviewed, you can, someone as a interviewer could easily say, what's the difference between Dr. Jones and Dr. Smith? Treatment plans, you know, what have you learned, how they approach clients, surgeries, things like that. And if you can extrapolate from all these different individuals, it shows a, a breadth of knowledge, I think. So I think that that's kind of interesting. If I talk to someone, you know, I have, I have an intern currently that worked with a lot of different ophthalmologists and it's interesting to learn different ways that people do different things. So when you're, we were talking with Dr. Jamie Hoistler, the general practitioner of the family about this very question and, and going in and doing these externships. And she was pretty direct of when starting these experiences, you have to be humble. You know, you have to be willing to volunteer your time. So talk a little bit about what that means from an experience perspective. It's one thing to have it on paper, but what's what, what does it mean to go into that experience and what should students be have in mind or be thinking about as they go into those experiences? Yeah. So when I, when I was going into vet school from undergrad, a lot of, a lot of how we gained experience was through volunteer work. And so you go and you work hours and you don't get paid. But we also followed veterinarians around. We didn't necessarily do any work. We just followed them around and watched what they did. I don't know if that is still the trend. I got into vet school in 2002. Jeez, so a long time ago. But for instance, I have a gentleman that works with me named Andrew. Andrew is a star. And Andrew came to us looking for volunteer work. And we told him, we don't do volunteers because volunteers will come and go as they please. And that's somewhat disruptive. So we said, but if you want a set schedule, we can pay you. And so he became an assistant. Even better. Yeah. So we, so we pay him. And so, and this is how we do things to this day is if someone approaches us for volunteer work, we say, well, if you can give us a set schedule, we will pay you. And therefore, we can rely on you to be there. We can hold you to the standards of employment, you know, watch how you interact with employees and, you know, certain disciplinary measures and all that kind of stuff, hold you to a higher standard. And then a lot of times those employment relationships can further, you know, move you down the line. So Andrew started as an assistant, ended up getting into vet school. Now he's looking at rotating internships and he wants to be an ophthalmologist. And so this didn't necessarily come about uh, from a place of volunteer. This came about as a place of 
I'm an employee that has done everything I need to do. And it's great to hear and see an example of somebody who's interested in the field, wants to be at a certain level at some point and gets started working at that entry level and understanding that you're going to have to start somewhere and it's you're not going to be a board certified veterinary ophthalmologist out of the gate. You've got to learn how the how the registration works, how the practice stays stays moving uh, to move your way up. So kudos to you, Andrew, if you're out there listening. No, you're he's not listening. listening. It, you better be listening. If he's you're... listening. Andrew's my boy. <laughs> Andrew's my boy. Andrew knows how special he is to me. Andrew, Andrew is a protege of mine. Andrew Schroyer, who will be uh, a DVM within the next year or so. And we should really have Andrew on the podcast because he's a he's a great individual. So I know he's listening because he already has debated me on if a hot dog is a sandwich um, he's when hooked. he comes in. He's hooked. Yeah. Well, and that, that will be good too, especially for an audience like Sparty here to hear directly from folks like Andrew. Mm-hmm. So any other any other thoughts on what veterinary students can do to make sure that their resume is reflective of who they are and that what they want to become? I think you just can't, you can't take no for an answer and you just keep having to knock on doors. You know, it's, it, admittedly, it's not easy to get involved in veterinary ophthalmology. I am impressed when I evaluate intern applications of people that have gotten started way early in their vet career, but then the majority of them, they get turned on to veterinary ophthalmology through, well, I was a senior in clinics and that's when I really started to like it. Or, you know, I was an intern and I rotated with an ophthalmologist. And I really started to like it. And unfortunately, many of those times, if they don't have the experience of following other ophthalmologists around, it can work against them to say, you're an intern and you're just now getting, getting turned on to this. There's people that were turned on to this when they were in high school or, or undergrad. I got really interested in it in my first year of vet school. So I, I had an early jump on it, but I had advice from mentors to see if this was an opportunity very early on. So I, th- I think that you just have to stick at it, realize that it may cost you a couple of years of experience before you get the spot that you want, which is unfortunate. But hey, if it was easy, everybody would do it. You know, but you but sometimes it takes years of work to be able to, you know, practice your dream for the rest of your life. You know, some people say, oh, well, it it takes me an extra year. That's you know, that that's tough. Well, okay, but what if you want to practice your dream for 35 years? Would you give up a year? I would. I'd give up two or three years if I got to practice my dream for for 35 years. Yeah. Well, DJ, this has been a, a shorter episode, a flash episode for us, no guests, but a by request, nonetheless, I just love and I'm, I'm so thankful that Sparty reached out to us at VetOptopod on Instagram to give us a recommendation and, and share with us what she's seeing and things that she's interested in to on behalf of her her fellow students and folks up there at Michigan State. And thanks to her also for encouraging her pre-vet friends to start listening to the Veterinary Ophthalmology Podcast. We really appreciate it. Please reach out to us at VetOptopod on Instagram with recommendations of topics, questions you might have. We'll maybe compile them all together and and do this again sometime. People you want us to talk to. There's yeah. an ophthalmologist that you want us to talk to. We can reach out for sure. Yep. So with that, Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this journey and listening to the Veterinary Ophthalmology Podcast. Until next time, everybody. Thank you very much.
Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this podcast with Dr. DJ Hoistler and John Lobby. Tune in next time for more educational content and current events in veterinary ophthalmology.